Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley. I'm the publisher on Women's Agenda and I am joined by our editor-in-chief, Tyler Lambert. Hello. Hello. On the agenda this week, a failure of accountability, a leader for our times. We have an interview with ABC News presenter Lisa Miller regarding her excellent new book, Daring to Fly, and a few bits and pieces and other things that we've come across along the way. Thank you for listening. So, Tala, a win for women this week. You were going to start by suggesting that your win was that you slept last night. So I want to see if you can dig a bit deeper for me. I slept in the guest room. I escaped my partner. Okay, we don't need to go there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Put some extra hours in. Um, no, to be honest, Ange, it was slim pickings for, you know, really triumphant, happy stories this week, if I'm being honest. But My win for women does come from Australian nurses and their message around the Melbourne protests this week and particularly the men at the centre of those protests who, let's just, to be honest, weren't, I don't think, a majority of construction workers even though um, that was how it was framed to be in the media originally. I think most of them were kind of alt-right neo-Nazis just trying to get on the bandwagon of a violent protest. But, you know, the the Nurses Federation have come out and, and really slammed what went on and basically said, you know, we need to stop putting so much pressure on the health system and when people act like this, that's what it's doing. Lisa Fitzpatrick actually said, you know, nurses have supported Dying COVID patients only able to comfort their families via a screen. Midwives have supported new parents finding their feet without the village of their families and friends. Aged care nurses and carers have seen hundreds of their residents contract COVID-19 and die without loved ones with them. Through it all, they wear hot, bruising and uncomfortable PPE, have their breaks in an outdoor tent or the car park and are getting vaccinated to protect themselves, their patients, their colleagues, loved ones and the community. And I just think... It was such a powerful statement. Obviously, she she goes into further detail and, and underscores that issue of when people protest like this, and I, I'm not anti-protest. I think people, you know, we live in a democratic country. That's exactly what people are able to do. But what we saw in Melbourne and the violence of it, the brutality of it, you know, police being attacked, journalists being spat at and attacked, people just running and being scared of terrorizing activity. There's no excuse for it. And when we do it, all we're doing is putting a huge burden on the health system, as the Nurses Federation have pointed out. I wrote a piece this week and just, again, further emphasize that point of the hardest hit industries throughout the pandemic have been those that are dominated by women. You know, we've got aged care, early education, childcare, nursing, All of these industries, women have been at the front line and they've been doing it incredibly tough and we just don't see them going out and, you know, acting in this really awful way. So I'm standing with the nurses, as I'm sure most Australians are at the moment. Yes, yes. And standing with all those other industries as well that are not doing this like you say you know it's not it's not necessarily the construction industry it's you know maybe that's a small minority that's where it started that's how it's been framed and even some of these protesters we've seen have you know created their own fake signs to try and align themselves with some of these union movements which hasn't 
really helped anyone's cause at all. But um, yeah, really, I, I really thought that that was such a powerful and beautiful statement. And I understand this time and this need and desire to protest things as well. But, you know, to put this further stress on this health system and just to think about what those nurses are doing and what they're going through and what teachers are going through, what early childhood educators are going through who are also facing the same issues of possible mandated vaccines, who are also facing the same issues of not being able to have lunch breaks the way they would like it. You know, I haven't heard anyone complain. They just get on and do it. So, yeah. Yeah, yes. All right. I will go international for my win. Let's get away from protests and earthquakes and the plague and everything else that is going on in Australia right now. The world. <laughs> uh, Angela Merkel, 16 years as Europe's most influential leader. As German Chancellor, she is preparing to leave office and, um, you know, the race is on as to who will replace her. Now, we've obviously followed her career and a lot of her decisions over the course of Women's Agenda, given we've been publishing for a decade of those 16 years that Merkel has been in power there. What really stands out is just this portrait of stability, and I think that has been a win for all of us, this this portrait of stability, you know, post-September 11, during this different time over the past 16 years, um, so many challenges, particularly across Europe, particularly in terms of refugees, migration, terrorism, that there's a lot of massive issues, climate change that she's really been uh, leading on. She's obviously dealt with four years of Trump and come out on uh you know, I, I dare suggest the winning side of that. You know, she was she's still in power, you know, at least to the minute now, and Trump certainly isn't. The other thing that stands out with Merkel is that, as well as being this portrait of stability, she's also clearly been one of you know usually one or two women in those massive international meetings, G seven meetings, G twenty meetings. You, you see the photos, and especially when you put their advisors in, and you just see Merkel standing out. Now, she was for a point standing there with Julia Gillard at a time. She was standing there with Theresa May at a time. But those pictures that we see of just the contrast of how men still do dominate international leadership, and frankly, that is not changing fast enough, as we know. Um, and a few photos, like, well, I just love this photo of Angela Merkel. I'm looking at it right now where she's leaning over the desk, kind of talking to Donald Trump, and she's surrounded by all these men. I think Theresa May might be in the shot. And I, I'm looking at them. I'm like, he's gone, he's gone, he's gone, he's gone, he's gone. Like most of them have gone. She's still been there. I know. And he's Expression in that image is so good. It's just like he's being absolutely schooled by someone who is just, you know, heads yeah. above him. It's just amazing. And she, I love that she's just standing there just like menacing. <laughs> yeah. And Merkel, yeah, doing the eye roll moment. I think we all remember that with Trump. Um, photo of her in the supermarket just buying some wine. Um, like not just like a bottle of wine. I think she has like four bottles of <laughs> white wine. I'm like, yeah, I just relatable, you know. I think she's got some shampoo in there. Like, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so a bit of a win there. Uh, you know, not not such a win. A bit of a loss that that her time is coming to an end. But uh, a win to have had her presence. I feel a hundred percent. Yeah, she will be sorely missed. So speaking of world leaders, I think that we 
We should probably touch on with all our expertise in uh, security and defence, I think that we should touch on the deal that Australia has signed with the United States and the United Kingdom, this new trilateral agreement where Australia will acquire technology to build nuclear-powered submarines. We touched very briefly on this in last week's podcast. I have a lot of feels about this. I know you do. I mean, I do too in that it was the the biggest power flex I've ever seen and I, I just wonder, you know, you just have to wonder kind of where Australia's diplomatic relations are going at this point and I mean, look, it's one thing to say this is a better deal than than what was posed with France and, you know, their handling of that situation and that relationship is topic probably for another time. But I just think to stand there with Biden, with Boris Johnson on that podium um, and really kind of cement that those are your key ties, that that friendship, and I think Biden um, reiterated this week that Australia was the US's greatest alliance. It's like, you know, they're they're really kind of positioning themselves in such a way and you've got to wonder what that does for the future of Australia's relationship with the rest of Indo-Pacific and, um, you know, the Asia-Pacific in general. Um, I, yeah, I question it altogether, but share your feels with me as well. You see something like this come out and, and you get that sense. It's like, oh, well, I'm not a security expert. I Like clearly this stuff is being sorted out with, you know, sharp intelligence and great minds and advisors and, of course, this is the best possible way forward. They're clearly thinking about Australia's national security. You, you kind of get that sense like this isn't a place for us to comment and that was my initial feeling about it. And then I look at it and obviously it's getting kind of – more interesting by the minute as we look at it because things are coming out. Like we saw that Joe Biden has now taken a call with Macron in France and they seem to have repaired their relationship and you wonder if maybe Joe Biden didn't fully get the uh, sense that maybe Scott Morrison hadn't really put in as much as he possibly should have in the lead to making this announcement. And I don't think it's a great situation to be in to have really hurt a relationship with France in this way. We, We tend to think France over there in Europe but actually um, there's a very big French presence in the Pacific here that is very important and, and vital to consider as well. It's also important to consider our relationship with the European Union as well and, and what this might mean for any future trade deals that we might want to do. I was trying to think back, sorry, just to say on that, but like I was trying to think back to whether or not I could remember such a diplomatic falling out in at least my lifetime. Like, I mean, France's condemnation of Australia was so fierce the level of fury at Morrison's mismanagement of that was beyond and you have to assume that that's not coming from nowhere you know for their ambassador to stand up and say we had absolutely zero consultation on this we didn't know he said he found out from the media and for the foreign minister to essentially say the same thing it beggars belief like you just can't imagine how they didn't collaborate on that and and have that conversation in a more fully-fledged way. Yeah, Morrison claims that he called them up at 8 o'clock the night before, which, I mean, that that's shocking in, in its own sense. But <laughs> leaving that aside, I mean, who made this decision? I want to know who was in the room, who made the decision, and I'm not necessarily sure about who got to collaborate on it. 
um, we're supposed to believe it, it went to cabinet, whatever. Um, in the UK, there's been reports that only 10 people there knew about this deal before it was released and, and shared with the media. So it makes you wonder about that, the case in Australia. But just all of this, this sense of what this ties Australia to, which actually makes me feel a little bit ill to consider some of the risks here, the first being that how we don't get these subs for like 20 years. This is a huge generational thing. This ties us to the United States and the UK for decades to come. And I know that, yep, great friends, awesome, but it is not beyond the realm of possibility that we could have a Trump presidency within you know three, four years it's not beyond the realm of possibility that we could have somebody worse than Trump in the presidency within that time frame. And God knows what could happen then in, in a decade, 16 years from now, either. Same thing in the UK. The other issue that I have with this is that, you know, we don't have a nuclear industry. Is this the start of the nuclear industry in Australia? We've like, there's been such a long history of protesting this, protesting the industry, protesting the idea of nuclear weapons here. And, Morrison is saying, well, you know, nuclear weapons are absolutely not on the agenda. There's no plans for it. There's no policy for it. There's no contemplation of it, his quote. And yet until this past week, as far as most of us thought, nuclear-powered submarines were not on the agenda either, and all of a sudden they are. So things can change so quickly. And it's just what does this say about our history, who we are, where we are, who we're going to be tied to in decades to come, whether we like it or not? And of course, what does it say for who can, can trust Australia in the future as well if we're willing to tear up a $90 billion contract overnight? But what does it also say for our closest neighbours? You know, you've got Indonesia there that's like third biggest population. I'm not saying that there's any necessary fallout there, but obviously this is a bit of a power flex towards China. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be doing something there. Obviously there are issues with how China is managing its diplomatic relations in general at the moment. But it it makes me wonder how it kind of looks and is perceived in that part of the world. You know, we are standing there and we are literally an island in the middle of the Asia Pacific and we're standing there going our biggest partners, our most valued partners are all the way over the the other side of the world. And it's just this very Western-centric, I keep going back to the word flex, but I just I can't really think of a better word because I that's exactly how I see it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you've got, you know, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, she's like, well, you know, your subs are not coming anywhere near us, <laughs> which is, yeah, that's so, what does it say about that relationship? And just to finish on this, it's that kind of sense of like, oh, is this a women's issue? You know, why are we talking about this on women's agenda? And people do ask those questions, which can send me spare some of the time. But it is a women's issue because I would like to know what this issue would look like, what world security would look like, what these alliances would look like. Maybe if we just had some more women in the mix, if not in those positions of power, at least in advisory capacity and diverse mix of advisors there as well, to make sure that we're considering all sides of these massive decisions. I think there are many kind of complex challenges that come with that, but I agree with you. I think that the fact that it was just done in the dead of night and then we woke up and all of a sudden, you know, this huge announcement's made and yeah. we're just I'll, I'll, like, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt and I don't I don't think they were there on Zoom. <laughs> like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we just like 
Look, I would have put it past them. Joe Biden <laughs> couldn't even remember Scott Morrison's name the next morning. Like, honestly, who, who knows what goes on with these people? Yeah. Okay. Well, just before we move on, I do want to note that we have a new sponsor on this podcast, which we are really excited about because it helps us to make it happen and it helps us to support all our publishing efforts across Women's Agenda. So that is with Superhero, which is a superannuation and an investment platform, which is really about aiming to give back financial control. So each week on this podcast as part of this sponsorship, and this is great, Tyler, for you and I because I think we are going to get some great tips here that we need to follow through on, but we are going to be bringing you a short financial hack that will be supported by Superhero and really to help all of us in taking back control of our finances, our investments, our superannuation, all that kind of thing. So that will be coming from next week, and thank you to Superhero for supporting this podcast. All right, we should go to our interview. So I was able to interview Lisa Miller, ABC, a news breakfast presenter and a former foreign correspondent, somebody whose career I have followed quite religiously over the past 15 years or so. I've loved watching her career. It's incredible to see somebody go from, you know, destination to destination and just be at the forefront of so many massive international stories. And she really was. And that is why her book, Data Flight is so good. It is kind of like this this history of maybe say the past 20 or so years and you sit there and it's like, wow, she was there for that story and that story and that story and all over the world. So amazing book and um, really great to interview Lisa. And I also interviewed Lisa at a time when I know that she had been dealing with some really terrible behavior across social media to the point that she's actually removed herself from from Twitter. We do touch on that briefly, but um, a little kind of public service, I won't say announcement, but just, you know, a plea. Can we please stop this ridiculous bullying across social media, particularly bullying of female journalists especially. I'd love to see Lisa Miller back on Twitter at some point in the future. So we'll pass to that interview now. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Lisa. Hello, Angela. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Congratulations on your book. It was um, reading through it just an incredible childhood you had exposed to so many different experiences, not only given your life in, in rural Queensland and, and that small plane that you had, but your parents, your grandmother, your your father being a federal MP as well. And then, of course, that childhood extended into this international career, which, as I was just commenting on, you have been there for the biggest stories in certainly my memory. So I might just jump to your first overseas posting, if that's okay. So you got that job to work in the highly sought after Washington Bureau for the ABC and it was within days of 9-11 and within a year or so of completing an ANSET fear of flying course. So this would obviously change everything that we, we knew about life and I imagine fear as well. So I just want to ask you about those few days, given it's been 20 years since, since 9-11, just maybe in these past few days even, what have you been processing about that time when you first heard of, and we talk about the second plane hitting the towers because that's really when we realised that everything had changed. 
Yeah, so I'd been told, got the phone call that I was going to be the new North America correspondent on September the 7th. And it's that sense of celebration and telling all the family and ringing friends. And then on the night of September 11 here in Australia, when we were watching it happen, I just sat on the couch and was watching television like so many other people. It took a few months for me to then get over to America to actually start my posting. When I got there, Ground Zero was still smouldering. There was still smoke coming out of Ground Zero. There was a real sense that this was going to be a very long story. And, you know, when it first happened, I'd remembered thinking, oh, God, I've got to get over there before it all finishes, before this story is over, that sense of being this foreign correspondent going off on her first job. Do you know, I thought I was going to be okay for this anniversary, but I actually started to um, get a couple of wobbles. I watched a documentary that I was sitting there viewing and I could feel the goosebumps and I suddenly realised I was tapping my foot very quickly and I thought, gosh, this is bringing back a lot of memories because I met a lot of people who had lost loved ones in September 11. I'd met them for the first anniversary and then I reconnected with them 10 years later. I was thinking about how they'd be feeling on that day, this 20th anniversary. And also, I guess the enormity, Angela, of the fact that my entire foreign postings over a span of 20 years, everything ended up going back to that one day in September. And I think that's what I felt, just the weight of knowing that I've spent the last 20 years reporting on all of the fallout from that one moment when you're watching those planes go into those buildings. Mm, yeah, and I think to bring the fear of flying in because, I mean, I was studying journalism at that point and I remember going to our lecture that day and obviously that sense of everything had changed and they they put us all in this big theatre and we had these special guests come and discuss what this could possibly mean. And I was about to fly to Europe within a few months on this trip that I'd been saving for, for years and I was afraid. And I just think about you and this book and how far, you, I mean, because so much of it is about overcoming these fears and you had very good reason for these fears as well, having, you know, experienced car accidents and um, the situation on the small flight in North Queensland. And then you go to this international career, first oh, of all, you know, within date. And, <laughs> and also that you're, I mean, constantly covering terrorist attacks and school shootings. And yeah. I mean, did it all come back to going through that fear of flying course that enabled you to do all this? Yeah, look, it took a couple of years after the fear of flying course. The best thing that someone said to me was, you've spent a long time building up this fear and it was probably a decade and you're not going to get over it overnight. So there were things that I did to try and help myself when I got to America. I was definitely more comfortable flying, but I was still very alert. I was probably hyper alert. And given that aircraft had been turned into weapons, then that made it even more so. But I do things like the United Airlines, you could listen to on the in-house, on the in-flight uh, entertainment system, you could listen to the pilots all talking to each other. 
So you would hear, you know, um, AA137, altitude increase, 3,000 miles. I see you out there, AA649. And I loved that because it gave me some sense of control. I would always stay awake on flights because I thought if I go to sleep, something might happen. I need to be absolutely alert on all of these flights. Um, So there were things that I did. I knew every single plane crash that had ever occurred in America. And I would say to the producer, Janet, she was a Canadian. She couldn't book me on a McDonnell Douglas 88 flight because I didn't like the style of plane. She couldn't book me on a value jet plane because I knew what their history was. There were all these things. And she was very patient. And I always got my flights everywhere, but it certainly took a lot of energy. Like I think that's the best way to say it because you're trying to do your job. You're trying to, you know, be a foreign correspondent and you've got to leap onto planes at a moment's notice. So to sort of nurse that fear, I guess, actually takes a lot of energy and you often feel exhausted from the fear. Yeah, the mental load of that fear. Having been, I guess, somewhat grounded, I guess, uh, for, is it a couple of years now since you you started back, or you moved to Melbourne and obviously going through lockdown, what, 220 days of lockdown. Um, (laughs) Where are you at with that fear? Do you, are you kind of, are you feeling this urge to get on planes at the moment? Oh yeah. By the time I wrapped up my last posting and I did three, I was so in love with flying. I, I now look at planes and think, I cannot wait to get back up there in the sky. And to think that I went from a point where I was so afraid that I would feel physically sick uh, if you'd told me I had to get on a Boeing 737 from Brisbane to Sydney, I would have diarrhoea for three days beforehand at the thought of that. So that's how deeply held my fear was. And I love telling people this story because you know, you can go from one extreme to the other. Whereas now I look up in the sky and if I see a plane and gosh, there aren't many of them around, I think, oh man, I can't wait to be up there. Um, Yeah. And this is the most amount of time that I have ever been on the ground because all of my family are in Queensland. So when I took this job, I said, it's okay. I'll come back all the time. I'll come back on weekends. And of course, it hasn't worked out that way as it hasn't for so many people in Australia at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I might get to that in a moment, but I do just want to ask, uh, just stick with the fear theme just for a moment. Would you have any advice for anyone really who's going through any kind of fear? Because in, in your case, there, there was a course that seemed quite structured and you talk about that course a lot and even calling up the person who ran that course 20 years later to tell him how much it had changed your life. If you were to look at other fears, because I know that you also talk about you know triathlons and things in, in the book that um, you, you actually completed the triathlon. Congratulations. That is amazing. Thank so, you. An Olympic distance An Olympic distance, yep. Mind. Yep. Um, and what's the secret to overcoming a fear? Is it to jump right in? Oh, no. I think it's to get help to get help. So I thought I could handle the fear and I did try and do that by myself. And then we had a couple of moments, you know, the morning of my honeymoon, we're at the airport, my then husband's mother, my mum and dad, my mum and dad's best friends, and they're sending us off to Europe for this fabulous holiday. And I'm just bawling my eyes out saying, how could you do this to me? I mean, that's how much I hated it. And finally, my then husband said, you've got to do something about this. And it wasn't until someone actually sort of, you know, almost 
it was the trigger. Like I needed someone to say, this is a problem. And so then seeking that help and the course was great because it was the psychology side of things as well as the nuts and bolts. You know, the pilots came along so I could say to them, why do you take off at that altitude? Can a plane really take off on one engine? You know, all those things that you're too embarrassed to ask other people. I don't know, and I know that some fears are related to anxiety, and so there's an underlying issue there that you actually have to deal with that anxiety. The thing that I would love to get across to people and what they hope they take out of this book and why there's so much joy in the book as well is that when you do overcome a fear, whatever it might be, and it does take work, it takes effort, it is the most empowering feeling. Like that triathlon, people say, why did you do that? When I didn't know how to swim, I had to learn how to swim properly. I say, because I got over a fear of flying. It was like I had put a Wonder Woman cape on and suddenly I was invincible because I knew that my brain with this fear had managed to stop me doing so many things and had controlled me. And once I was aware that I could actually control it and get over that fear, then I was okay. And so everything else that came, all the the terrorist attacks I covered and the difficult stories and the challenges and being away overseas on assignment when both mum and dad died and receiving that news, I feel like I got through all of that because I was empowered by getting over the fear. And that I just really want to give people hope with that in the book. You have a beautiful line there that I've taken note of, which was, and I think it was around when you finished that triathlon and you wrote, for every paralyzing moment of anxiety you can face and move past, another part of your life opens up. And you can definitely see that in the incredible career that you're having at the moment and and all the things that you're having and will continue to do. I won't go into specifics of different stories that you've covered, but um, just to give people an idea, really some of the biggest stories of our time. So everything post 9-11, that experience, Sandy Hook Elementary School, which I just can't imagine. That must have been so hard. Um, Terrorist attacks in France. David Hicks, Guantanamo Bay, uh, you were there for all of this, interviewing Fidel Castro. The Chappelle Corby trial, it just goes on and on. Myself, that I've been there. But even friends who've read the book, Angela, will say, Oh God, like we, we keep forgetting that you have been there on site at all of those things. Well, it is because I kept reading. I was like, Wait, you were there for that as well? <laughs> just, and again, uh, that's why I wanted to ask with that question about fear because, and I think that comes down to looking at terrorist attacks, especially, that must be challenging to live with that every day, having, having seen the direct fallout of what happens there. But can I ask about some of the interviews that you've done? Is there one that has most changed you or that you would pull out to share with our listeners regarding something you, you learnt or particularly felt uh, something really powerful from? There are a couple. Um, I've often spoken about the mother of Noah who died in Sandy Hook and Veronique, I just found the most incredible woman that not only would did she talk to me a couple of months after the shooting at the school, Noah was five years old, he had a twin sister who survived that day, but then she used her grief and channeled it to trying to change gun laws in America. And I'm always in awe of people who can be 
so knocked down by the the most awfulest of horrors and yet they find the strength to then try and do something good out of what has happened and so you know I I always think of her and just think she is quite an amazing woman there was also a widow that I met after September 11 she'd lost her husband she had two young children it's always stuck with me because I met her on the first anniversary and her kids were still just toddlers. And I'd come away from that interview and I'd felt so um, touched that I did something that I, I don't know that I've done it again. And I sent her flowers after the interview just to thank her for letting me step into her world and step into her home. And then when the 10th anniversary came around, I, I tracked her down and I said, look, I don't know if you remember me. And she said, of course I remember you. And I said, would you talk to me again? Because I'd love to know how you are. And when we met up with her, the cameraman and I walked into her home and she and her daughters were practising how they were going to read her husband's name at the anniversary ceremony at Ground Zero. And I was so overwhelmed by the fact that even though her girls were so small and they didn't really know their dad, she was so determined to keep that legacy and keep that memory of what she wanted them to remember. And so they were practicing reading his name and she kept saying, no, say it slower, say it with meaning. And you know, when you sometimes, when you're talking to someone and you get goosebumps, that's how I felt that day. And I've always thought of her whenever I think of September 11. Have you been able to get in touch with her since 10 years ago? Yeah, look, we've had a couple of contacts and I did message her much earlier this year. I didn't want her to feel that I was just getting in contact for stories or for anniversary pieces. It was just to let her know that I was thinking of her and that was much earlier this year. So I'm hoping she's got through this this particular anniversary okay. I like the fact that people I have interviewed have felt comfortable enough with the way I have treated them and I feel like I've learned so much over the years about how I treat people who have gone through grief and face trauma that if they invite me back into their homes and back into their lives, then that makes me feel better about the job that I did in the first place. Mm. So you've clearly interviewed and, and met remarkable, beautiful people. I guess you've also responded to stories that have been the result of really the worst of humanity as well. And, um, you know, we can talk about a terrorist attack, that's pretty clear. But I also look at Veronica, you mentioned the mother of Noah who died in, what, five years old in Sandy Hook and how that family and so many families like that have become the subject of, of trolls and people who claim it's a conspiracy. And it's just, I mean, it, it's horrible to think of how those people could do that or how anyone could do that to people. I guess, what are you left with? Do you think that we are, for the most part, good people? I do. And I think it's a great question, Angela, because people do ask me when you are constantly exposed to the worst of humanity, how do you believe that there is good and joy still in the world. And I think it's part of my character that that is the case. But I also think that I keep getting 
shown that there is incredible strength out there and incredible goodness, whether it's when this has just sprung to mind, going to the camp at Calais in France where all the migrants were gathered trying to make their way across to England and people who are there with their young families and children who have left war-torn countries and there are people feeding them and, and clothing them and housing them middle-class English people who've left their jobs in banks to go and help others, I feel like I'm also coming across incredible people like that. So I feel like the balance keeps getting equaled for me, to be honest. Don't get me wrong, there are plenty of times where I think, my God, this is just horrendous. What What am I looking at? If I'm you know, in Paris after the terrorist attacks to get to our live shot position each day, we'd have to walk past the restaurant where they'd poured sand on the floor to cover up the blood and the bullet holes were in the windows and you're walking past it every day three or four times and you're not human if that is not sinking in, if you're not carrying that. But then you also see people doing good and people trying to spread love and and humanity and caring and it's how you frame it in your mind I guess is what I'm saying is that you know there are bad things and there are good things and if you make the bad things massive in your mind then it's going to make the good things smaller that is such a basic way of saying it you try to frame things in your head so you're not weighed down by seeing the horror of what can occur Mm, yes, I guess you, you have to find that way through. And I mean, I, for, for one thing, I should say that I do believe that there is good in the human race. I, I asked that question in a very bleak way, but because um, I, I definitely do see the best of it all the time as well. I know that you've been going through a really hard time on social media and you've decided to, to take yourself off Twitter. It's pretty tough being a female journalist at the moment. Um, It's always been tough, but we've got a new element now with social media and particularly with people really feel that they can say things that they might not otherwise say at you, at your face. Can you talk us through a little bit about that decision to to get off social media? And I don't know if you you plan on going back on Twitter or or what that period's been like for you the past few days when you, you you haven't had to deal with it. Yeah. Look, I'm staying on some social media, Instagram, Facebook, but Twitter, I have found over the last few years, to be honest, has become an angrier place where people want to lash out. And I'd noticed it over the past year, of course, you know, I'd taken on a new job as a presenter of News Breakfast, but just over the last couple of months, even, it had really cranked up. It'd get to the point where if people thought that we were leading the program with a story that they thought was inappropriate, that we should have been leading with Sydney COVID rather than Melbourne COVID story, you know, depending on the development, they would then say, hashtag Lisa Miller bias, this is, you know, Lisa Miller's doing this. I was, it got to the point where I realised it was actually nothing I could do. You know, the trolls, for whatever reason, had taken a set against me. And when you're doing three hours of live television and you're getting feedback like that while you're on air, then I don't know that many people have to put up with that. It's like it's like me going to watch someone build a house and say, hey, listen, I'm not a brickie, but I've lived in a house and your work is crap. 
that brick's stupid. Don't put that brick there. Like it's like someone's giving you commentary while you're working. People have turned on the television and see the news. They read a newspaper so they believe they are fully capable of telling you how to do your job and not just in a constructive, helpful way, but in a very personal, sack her, eliminate her, she's stupid, chip, 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 just dripping into your social media feed, no matter how much I tried to restrict it or avoid seeing it. And I finally said, enough. I am not going to be bullied like this. And so I deactivated my account and I didn't make a big deal about it. I didn't say I'm deactivating my account. I just walked away from it. And then about four days later, the trolls discovered that I was no longer there on Twitter. And that is what then sent them into a frenzy. And so again, you know, I wasn't aware of it, but people were ringing me saying, are you okay? Because of the stuff that was being said look, I'm great now. (laughs) I am going to be very happy post Twitter. I think the company needs to really think about the environment it is creating and allowing to occur, not just for women, for people from other marginalised groups or other vulnerable groups in society. And I think, quite frankly, those people who use social media and do it anonymously need to have a look at themselves and wonder what kind of community they are contributing to. Yeah, yeah. And and just go back and reflect on that idea of would you actually go and say this to, to somebody's face? And do you feel it's gotten worse in this latest lockdown period for this past few months? Yeah. And I think leading up to an election campaign as well, up to a federal election campaign, it's very oh, course, yeah. politically charged. And so I can imagine it will continue that way until after the election. Yeah. And and do you feel it is worse for women? I mean, one of the oh, things yes. that I noticed yes, was without that a doubt. people were responding to you, you know, allegedly smiling at John oh, yes. Howard. And and that was one of the, the, the yeah. big things that set all this off. Yeah. And I, I just feel that that comes down to women being scrutinised on, on television. Yeah. But I can, I, we also have this um, very good control system in that I sit next to a male co-host and he and I, both were using Twitter and he could see how I was being treated versus how he was being treated. And, you know, Michael's a wonderful friend of mine and and he felt badly for me. I mean, we all had a sort of post, post-show meeting in the green room to sort of like what on earth is going on here? Um, no, I think the way women are treated um, on the platform, you know, I think it's appalling. But as I've said, it's not just women. It's a lot of groups. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so you're still on other social media, so that's good yes. to hear. <laughs> and and they are, they're all different. They have different sort of ways about them. And, and sometimes I can find other forms of social media a little bit too positive. So it goes the yes. other way. I was like, this isn't reality. But <laughs> but no, that is good to hear. So congratulations on your new book as well. It is, it is incredible. Like I say, it just... It feels like a history of the past uh, two decades or so for all these stories that so many of us can remember where we were when we when we first heard about them and just to think that you were there or you were there you know shortly after it occurred is is absolutely incredible so congratulations one final question because you are in lockdown in melbourne and um uh, you know this is hard for all of us but um it must be hard 
like you say, you, when you, you mentioned that you thought you'd be flying to, to Queensland each weekend, you thought you'd be moving about, you still get that a bit of sadness when you see those planes in the air. And, you know, you probably had the opportunity to slow down a little bit uh, last lockdown and, and, and here you are again in the sixth lockdown. How are you coping? Oh, look, I'm coping well because I still get to go to work every morning even though it is while well, most people are sleeping. Um, I get into the office at about quarter to four in the morning and so I engage and I see people and I also make sure that I do a lot of exercise. So I'll always arrange to try and go for a walk with one of the producers after the program. So, you know, I'll go for a bike ride. I also, I think I suffered last year, Angela, because I kept thinking, oh, it'll be over soon. It'll be over soon. I planned so many holidays and ended up with enough vouchers to open up a travel agency. This year, I've done nothing. And I've even said to my family, I may not make it back to Queensland for Christmas. And I think having low expectations this time around has actually helped me get through it. Last year, I wrote the book. I still can't believe I did that. <laughs> Michael <laughs> Rowland said, gee, all he did was watch crap TV for a year. <laughs> and there you are. You wrote the book and you're still going to work every day. So. <laughs> um, and it's, like I said, it's a great book. So thank you again, Lisa. Thank you so much. All right, well, thank you so much to Lisa again for that interview. So, Tyler, we started there looking at September 11. I know that it's been a few weeks since the 20th anniversary of September 11, but to finish us off, you were, you're a bit younger than 11. Yeah, so what was that like for you from an 11-year-old's perspective? I remember it really quick, clearly, actually. I was in primary school and I remember as it was happening and it was my one of my closest friend's birthdays. And it seemed like this kind of fascinating but horrifying thing, but we didn't really know what the connotations were. I was 11 years old, so it was hard to know exactly what terrorism meant. But I I also just remember that being the beginning of a different era and the political language that kind of came from that, um, you know, you had John Howard at the time coming out and really talking for the first time that I remember about this threat of terrorism and as an 11 year old you're just like what does that mean like is Australian next and then obviously that carried on for for so many years and that fear of terrorism and certainly one that's capitalized on by a lot of politicians has really stuck with me for my entire life since that point. I mean, I, I was just in first year university and studying journalism so of course it was like massive that sense of we've entered a new era and that sense of we'll be talking about where we were when we when this happened for years to come. I think that was definitely true. And also just seeing all the pictures which still stick with me. And I think especially at that age when you're so impressionable, I would have been 18 or something, and that you make up the stories and you're like, but that person was this and this happened and, and they would have had a family. And and you know, looking back, it was such a dramatic event that played so well, sadly, to television screens. And I always had that sense of all around the world, significant things are also occurring and it's ruining the lives of people and people are dying and suffering um, just as those people were. But always that sense of, yeah, this one is what we see on our television screens, but it doesn't make what happens elsewhere any less worthy of consideration or our time or our empathy and sympathy and pain and, and sadness for other things happening globally. I wish more people shared that perspective, Ange. 
Um, sadly, I don't. I think you may be in a minority there. Not that people aren't caring of what happens in the rest of the world, but I think we are we're desensitized to a lot of it. Yeah. All right, Tala, we should go. We promised that we we're going to start trying to get our podcast to 30 minutes and we have failed miserably once again, but we will. That is our mission for the next few weeks. And once we're there, we'll know exactly how to do it. Thank you, Tala. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Women's Agenda podcast. Please go and subscribe to our daily newsletter so you can get all these thoughts and stories and issues in your inbox at lunchtime before we yabber on about it on this podcast. A reminder, you can also check out our second podcast, The Leadership Lessons, featuring interviews with female leaders on how to lead for the decade ahead, which I think is particularly interesting and important in the context of the conversation that we've just had right now. Thank you for listening. 